0: Chapter 4 of Ronald and I, or Studies from Life by Alfred Prater. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Our Rector. We had two, if not three, celebrities in our village. The rector is dead, the clerk is dead, the professor still lives. But independently of this claim to our respect, let us give precedence to the church less than fifty years ago the services in a parish not ten miles from one of our well-known watering-places were done or left undone by surely the queerest cleric of his time a grand old man he was in person tall and venerable as a bead himself with the most benevolent of faces and the most silver of silver hair fit to be an archbishop so far as appearances went but most unfit to have the charge of the hundred souls there were no more of them committed to his trust to these he ministered or as i have said failed to minister on sunday mornings for often as not the services stipulated for at the price of seventy-five pounds per annum were left unperformed and on the shallowest of pretext it might be the weather it might be that he was indisposed often i fear it was from sheer disinclination to the hamlet that clustered close round the church it was a matter of comparative indifference they never believed by anticipation in the service till the bell was actually sounding and his henchmen clark sexton choirmaster and gravedigger in one had strict orders to withhold this summons till the rector himself was actually in view but to our party who lived two miles away the question of service or no service was a serious one it meant hesitation in starting and reluctance to risk the chance provocation too even to my long-suffering father when he found the church door barred and a sou'wester brewing in the teeth of which we had to struggle home over a barren down unsupported by the nutriment mental and moral on which we had calculated but the service when it did take place was a queerer experience by far than the service foregone the orchestra would have been the despair of nebuchadnezzar it consisted of a single flageolet blown by the wheezy old sexton one joseph edwards by name we did not even boast of a serpent instrument immortalized by mr hardy for its volume of tone in supplementing deficiencies now the flageolet is a pet aversion of mine and i can forgive nebuchadnezzar many of his iniquities for having so far as we know excluded it from his band indeed musicians themselves would seem to be ashamed of it for they have rechristened it i am told by a humbler name but i was careful not to betray my feelings to my friend joseph and listened patiently while he enlarged on the capabilities and melodiousness of his pet instrument not but what i'm getting a bit wheezy he'd often say to me and can't make the flourishes as once i could but t'is maybe better as it is they quieter tunes are belike more godly anyhow the choir poor souls got right puzzled among my turns and quavers coming in here there and no how at the finish but praise it as he might the flageolet is the worst instrument possible to constitute an orchestra especially when played as joseph played it it gave out a series of squeaks and counter squeaks punctuated and accentuated by his squeezes rather than by the requirements of the tune indeed a boy learning the bugle or a punch and judy panpipe would have discoursed more decorous music to me the panpipe and the flageolet seem nearly akin only the flageolet is the more powerful instrument of the two and punch is more exacting than we were in the choice of an executant Once, as a special favour, I was invited by Joseph to attend a choir practice. It was before his hand, or, I should say, his breath, had lost its cunning, and it took place on this wise. An hour before service, which on this occasion was actually realised, Joseph took his stand in the reading-desk, flageolet in hand, while a group of apple-cheeked cottagers, fishermen mainly and ploughboys grouped themselves in my father's pew below in one point at any rate joseph had anticipated the ritual of later days he repudiated all women from his choir tain't no place for em he'd say i wonder what apostle paul'd think if he could a heard they two women a daint matthew's a screechin' out oh twas a joyful sound to hear and none of us let alone the choir privileged to put in a joyful sound along with em At women bent allowed to preach in church stands the reason they bent allowed to sing now boys turn to aurelia and go for to remember that we sing the whole on right through this time last time as ever we did it some of you took to skippin and we sang one verse and t'other the next whereby i had to blow myself nigh faint to hide your discordance and mind you too sing and slow not as if you wanted to get shot on it all went well at the first rehearsal for joseph played the air distinctly and without disturbing flourishes only with an intolerable drawl mindful in all probability of passons injunctions of which more anon well sung says he you be a good choir when you be so minded and well instructed too though i says it as didn't ought to now then we'll see what you can do when i puts in the flourishes this was a change for the worse and what had been a melancholy dirge became a haphazard scramble for notes each boy seizing on the one that he could detect among the enveloping flourishes regardless whether it was the same note that had found favour with his neighbour in the end the hymn became a sacrilegious fugue devoid of time harmony or sequence yet joseph was never disquieted at the result on the contrary he regarded it as a tribute to his skill addressing his choir at the finish as a general might address his discomfited troops you've done your best and none of us can't do no more better luck at church-time and this i do say that 'tis few players can overlay a melody as i can with flourishes and expect them as sings it to pick out the tune but to return to our rector the fun began i write remember as a boy of ten with the first lesson when the time for it approached great preparations were seen to be in progress our benevolent archbishop retired into the recesses of the reading-desk a high square pew scarcely to be differentiated from our own and disposed his lunch in orderly array upon the sill overhanging my father's head and to give time for its consumption a boy was summoned from the congregation usually it was his own son a curly-pated lad of thirteen to discourse the lesson manfully he grappled with the difficulties and hard names of the old testament sticking and halting at nothing and making a record of false quantities and mispronunciations that i have never heard beaten during a twenty years experience of the average undergraduate meanwhile his father lunched peacefully careless what havoc he made with the kings of israel and judah but woe betide the boy if ever he tried to skip a name a guttural rebuke issued from the depths of the reading-desk none of that jack go back my lad and try it again but his greatest delight of all was to hear jack struggling with the genealogy in st luke a series of chuckles issued from the corner where the old man lay ensconced that gathered in volume with every fresh fall and when the boy hot and discomfited retired from the fray there was a pause in the proceedings till the old man had recovered himself sufficiently to resume his functions his luncheon meanwhile had been progressing steadily and not without the gurgling sound of something comforting to facilitate digestion it puzzled me for years to discover the raison d'etre of this extraordinary meal knowing as i did that an hour later he would be dining with one of his cottagers after careful preliminary inquiry as to which house could offer the most attractive fare Only quite lately, long after the idea of luncheon had been stereotyped upon my brain, I found out that the so-called luncheon was, after all, no luncheon at all, but only a retarded breakfast. Our rector, being a late riser and having a five-mile walk before him, could find no opportunity of taking it in comfort till he had reached the haven of the parish reading-desk. A cigar was the indispensable accompaniment of the second lesson during which period its fumes could be seen ascending like curling incense to the blackened rafters of the roof indeed the only thing that ever really shattered my father's equanimity was the sight of its reeking end projecting over his head from the sill of the reading-desk where the rector had reluctantly placed it while he applied himself to the requirements of the benedictus when the flageolet sounded the key note of the first hymn the rector regarded it as the signal of a temporary relaxation he was for a time off duty, and the cigar was again in requisition. But in fine and balmy weather, he found the atmosphere of the church too close for its enjoyment. It gathered sweetness from the open air. So, attired in surplice, stole, and bands, our rector strolled out into the churchyard, giving us pleasant little vista views of his enjoyment as he passed and repassed the windows of the aisles that it might be enjoyed in perfection and unto the end the hymns selected were inordinately long but if fate was against him and the wind light and the cigar drew slowly he had no false shame in appearing on the chancel steps to announce with all the dignity of a formal notice that the last two verses of the hymn would be repeated after which he disappeared into the churchyard again the sermon was to me as a boy full of the most delightful interest it had an infinity of anticipation no one knew what was coming least of all the rector himself we felt stimulated by the chance of any and every possibility a clergyman of the strictest sect of the evangelicals he always preached in a surplus it was in the days remember when the geneva gown was the badge of that school and the sign of a high church cleric was barely appearing above the horizon but i sadly fear that our rector was influenced by no question of principle or non-principle i cannot i think be wronging him if i infer that his preference for the surplice was due to sheer indifference or indolence Then came the always exciting task of moving the immense Bible from the reading-desk to the pulpit. He regarded it, I think, almost in the light of a fetish, and certainly, so long as I knew him, would never have attempted a sermon with any smaller and less trustworthy guide. He balanced the enormous volume in his right hand, and with his left hand on the rails steadied himself as he made the painful and perilous ascent the hope i fear of us boys was that the book would one day slip from his hand and imperil the head of the clerk beneath who was now no longer choir-master but like a roman flute-player had crossed over to his proper seat and resumed his duties beneath the pulpit but the hope was never realised and i have felt ever since that my life has lacked something in consequence the choice of his text was the longest part of his sermon the bible was opened haphazard as though he intended to execute a sort of sore Vergiliana, but so casual a method was quite unsuited to the dignity of our rector the pages were turned and returned, whole chapters were read and carefully studied, and after a quarter of an hour of this preliminary investigation, a text was given out that, for glaring irrelevance and disconnection with everything else, could never have been surpassed if he had taken it at sight. A name out of a genealogy, of the Christian name Mary, Toffett, the daubed wall. Pillows for all armholes are among the subjects that I distinctly remember were selected for our edification. But of the treatment, alas, I remember nothing. Nothing then, and certainly nothing now, when I would give fifty pounds to trace the exact process of his reasoning. The last sermon I ever heard him deliver was on the text, And there shall be no more sea. An unwise and disquieting subject for a congregation, most of whom came of a race of fishermen and gained their living from the element which he so confidently annihilated. If the bant no sea, then tis no place for i, I heard a man say to his neighbour as he passed out of church, and thanks alive, where he bein goin to get their fish from? Such was our rector, not reverent or discreet, you will say, in his capacity of priest. No, but a kindly genial old man, devoted to his parishioners, if not to his duties, clever too, and companionable in society, and inexhaustible as to the boys of the parish in the matter of marbles and gingerbread. It is with affection that I recall him, for in spite of his eccentricities, and perhaps because of them, I loved him well. R.I.P. End of chapter 4